Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning at uh, Christ Community Fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to uh, gather as your people. We thank you for those who are here and for those who are watching and those who would long to be here, Lord, but are unable. And We just pray that your word will be useful and instructive to us this morning, that you would speak, Father, and not me, um, because my words are silly and useless, Father, and yours are glorious and full. So we thank you, Father, and we ask that you would help us to understand and that these words would reverberate in our hearts and our minds and our souls this morning as we depart from here later um, to glorify you better than we did coming in. We love you, Father. Amen. Things are changing around here. I'm preaching today. Uh, Pastor Matt will be back next week to finish his series in the letters in Revelation, as was mentioned earlier. And then uh, the week after that, somebody else will preach, and then Marcus Wilcox will preach, and then I'll be back. And it's going to be a bunch of teachers over the next few weeks here. And then in about two months, I'll be leaving Christ Community Fellowship altogether. Um, <laughs> um, so will Pastor Arthur and, uh, and his family. And things will change, and somebody else will change the light bulbs, and somebody else will teach children's church, and somebody else will run the uh, video and lead life groups and so on and so on and so on, and things will change. And in a few weeks, the school will be out from here, and people will start their summer vagabonding and all that good stuff. Things are changing. They're always changing, right? And we always celebrate change sometimes when it benefits us. You know, if you go to the self-help section of any bookstore that still exists, um, you'll see a whole shelf full of books dedicated to changing your outlook or to changing your diet or to changing your approach to business or to parenting or marriage or school, and they'll encourage you to change just one or two little things or, or maybe everything, but to do some kind of a change and things will be better because change is a, is a powerful force for good. And sometimes we deride change when it's inconvenient for us. In the pages of any issue of a journal on psychology, you're bound to see an article or, or several about the, the fear of change or overcoming change or dealing with change, loss of a job, or moving to a new city, or a broken relationship, and, and so on. We get riled up when our habits have to change, or when laws change, or when, God forbid, our minds have to change. Change can be an overwhelming roadblock, a kind of persistent and nagging antagonist that lurks beyond the corner of every decision we have to make. And we certainly talk about change a lot, Back in my day, we did this and that and the other, and we didn't have so-and-so and such-and-such, -and, -such, and we turned out fine, right? Every generation said it, so will mine. <laughs> change. Now, there's no getting around it, but this is not going to be a sermon about change. This is going to be a sermon about what stays the same. So turn, uh, if you would, with me to the book of Acts <clears throat> and go to chapter 13. We're going to hunker down there this morning. It might take us a few minutes to get there. I'm going to teach from the New King James today, but you can use the ESV that's in the seat in front of you or whatever translation you have. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can go to your table of contents or just look for the division between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the book. The New Testament, of course, beginning with those Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then right after that, you'll find the book of Acts. This is a, a wonderful book that I, I've taught out of this uh, more here than any other book uh, while I've been at CCF. Um, it's a wonderful book because it details the early life of the church and the growth of the church after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see the, the early confusion and the fear that gets supplanted and replaced by uh, certainty and courage given by God in the Holy Spirit. 
And we see a, a haphazard and ragtag group of fishermen and others, outcasts, become an orderly family of missionaries and preachers through that same spirit. And we see the fulfillment of the law become the embarkation point for a new covenant between God and his chosen people, who are no longer chosen because of their ethnicity or their habits, but by their hearts. Acts is the book where we see things change. And you could certainly argue, and, and I would give you a lot of leeway with this, that, that things had been changing through the Gospels up to the, the book of Acts, and they certainly have. The changes have been put into place. The arrival of the Messiah, the long-anticipated and awaited Messiah, and his perfect life and his ministry and his ultimate sacrifice upon the cross, these, his burial and, and his conquering of death and his resurrection were the most massive changes to the status quo of the Jewish people, no question. But the, the agent of change to come is one thing, and to see the actual working out of that change among people's lives is another thing entirely. For example, little Wendy, my, my third daughter, she, uh, she broke her arm a few weeks ago because it, it turns out that the, the safety nets on trampolines, they only work if you're inside them and not trying to climb up the outside. Uh, <laughs> so she had a cast put on uh, for a few weeks, and so her arm was at about a 90-degree angle for weeks. She's still actually trying to get it straightened out all the way. And this was right before t-ball season started, which she's been looking forward to since she was two years old and, and Miles was playing. Um, and so we've been working on her swing for a long time. And, you know, as somebody who, who used to think he was a decent ball player, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, we talked a lot about how to, how to get in position where your elbows should be and, and your weight balance and all that kind of stuff and where your hips need to go to, to have a good swing. And so she goes, she goes to her first practice a couple weeks ago. And it's her turn to practice hitting, so she grabs a bat because nothing stops Wendy. Um, <laughs> and she goes to take, uh, take a swing, and instead of this nice, you know, flat, you know, extended arm swing, she kind of she goes like this, you know, because she can't bend her arm. And she just kind of looks like a, like a rusty wind vane or something on the peak of a barn, you know? It can't really move. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the point is that the change had already happened. She'd already broken her arm. It wasn't going anywhere. The cast had already made it impossible for her to swing, but she hadn't worked that out yet. The working out of that change, the adapting to the new reality had yet to come. <clears throat> and so that's kind of like what we see in the book of Acts, where the agent of change has already happened. But the, the working out of that change among the people it affects, that's, that's still to come. Um, and it's wonderful to go through the book of Acts and see it happening, sort of in real time. And there are a bunch of changes in the book of Acts. And 13, chapter 13 is, is kind of a delineation point between several of them. Uh, it's roughly where the book divides between the earlier ministry of, of uh, Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area, and then we start to see the, the work of Paul and those missionaries going out into the broader world. It's also the point where we see the spread of the gospel happen because of persecution in those first chapters, and now it's happening because of planned missions more in the, in the last few chapters. It's also the point where we see the focus go from just the Jews receiving the gospel and, and the Samaritans um, to also the Gentiles, to the uh, the fullness of the church in its glory that uh, is, is beyond ethnic and cultural and racial boundaries. People who were chosen, whose common tie is not how wealthy they are or whose parents they have uh, or how they'd acted or any of these things, but Christ alone. Where Christ becomes the binding force of the church, the, the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God, as Paul writes in Colossians 2. This is a seismic shift in how things are operating to have the gospel go out to the Gentiles. It's divisive, even. 
you go back to chapter 11 of Acts, a couple chapters before we're being today, it begins with these verses. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter goes on to, to really what had happened and why he had done that. You may be familiar with this where Peter's he's meditating. The Lord tells him that what, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. And where Peter first thinks he's talking about dietary laws, and he is, he begins to realize what God is saying is, is that the people theretofore viewed as unclean were in fact cleanable by Jesus' blood, just as the Jews could be. And as Peter finishes his explanation in verse 16, he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It's shocking at first. This, that salvation from the Messiah, who is decidedly Jewish, should be for anyone other than the Jews. And yet, nevertheless, as we look back through the Old Testament into the New, we see that it's been God's plan from the beginning. Even when he promises in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Adam and Eve would crush the serpent's head, there was, at least from our linear timeline perspective, there is no Israel. There are no Jews at that point. Even when God promises to Abraham in, in Genesis 12.3 that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, through his offspring, by one of his descendants. There's no Jacob yet. There's no Israel. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there is in that promise, no exclusivity, that his offspring will bless only his other offspring. But all the families of the earth, plain as day. And yet, for the Jews, who for many, many centuries had viewed themselves as God-chosen people, and so they were. It was, it was difficult to accept that salvation would be granted to anyone else. Even Peter, who had been shown the folly of his own thoughts time and time again, takes a, a direct intercession from God to understand that point. But we reach here in the, in the middle of the book of Acts. This is happening now in a church in a city called Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. In that city with a shift from Jew only to Gentile also is happening. That city was the capital of the Syrian province of the Roman Empire. Um, and some men had already begun to teach there about Jesus. And in Acts eleven nineteen, it tells us that after the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr of record, people took the good news of Jesus Christ and they started sharing it there in Antioch, this big city. But they were preaching to no one but Jews only, it says, which makes sense because there's a huge Jewish audience there. Uh, Josephus, who we, we uh, trust with a lot of history, he's a very good resource to know what was going on in that, in that time. He wrote that there was no larger population of Jews anywhere in the world outside of Judea than in Antioch. So if you were going to take that gospel anywhere else, you'd start there probably. And so with, with synagogues there and a Jewish population, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to start there with Christ. This was the continuation of the gospel beginning to be shared in and around Jerusalem and then in Samaria and then as Jesus commanded, to the ends of the earth. But while the distance was being covered, hundreds of miles, the, the people were not. 
See, Christ's, Christ's command was not to share his story with only Jews to the ends of the earth. And so in addition to the work of going into the synagogues and teaching, there were also detailed in the very next verse of Acts 11 and verse 20, another group of people. It says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so while you have one group of people going out and, and evangelizing to the Jews only, you have these others who are going out and teaching to the Hellenists. And that's a word that um, it basically means Greekified. Um, you had a lot of Hellenistic Jews, Jews who had been out of the homeland for a long time and had taken on um, and learned the Greek language and adopted many parts of the culture and so on. They would be Hellenistic Jews. So in that sense, they maybe just be teaching to another group of, of Jews who happened to be um, more Greek in identity and had Greek as their native language, so they were being taught in Greek. But really, Hellenistic refers just to being Greek. Anybody who's been absorbed into the Greek culture, whether you were adopted into it or born into it. And so I believe the juxtaposition of verses 19 and 20, the fact that it tells us there are two different groups teaching here, it makes it clear these Hellenists were not just Hellenistic Jews, but Greeks in general, Hellenists at large. And so we have the, the one group of teachers in verse 19, teaching Jews only, and a group of people in verse 20 teaching Greeks also. So you can see here in Antioch, this gospel going out from just Jews to Gentiles also, because things change. They had to change. And the change had already been made, right? Christ had already died. He'd already risen again. He'd already defeated death for all who would come to believe in him. That had already happened. For, for the matter, I mean, God had planned this salvational act and pattern from time immemorial. There was no point in time in which this wasn't the plan. The course had long been set. It was already and always the case. But they were just now living it out, just now experiencing it, just now coming to understand it, adapting to those changes. So what changed wasn't reality or God's plan. What had changed was their understanding, their knowledge, their awareness, their experience. God didn't change. They did. And God blessed this change massively, if you look at the next verse. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, there are a few things going on here. There's a month of Sundays in those verses, um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of them. But let's take a quick survey of the land here. God blesses the sharing of the gospel with these Gentiles by adding many to the church. So many, the word makes it all the way back to Jerusalem, 300 miles away, and they send Barnabas to go check it out. And Barnabas, Barnabas is one of my very favorite characters in, in Scripture. You know, his name means son of encouragement, and he's the scout that's sent to go make sure everything's on the up and up in Antioch. And, and it is, and he encourages them, as is his want. And so he goes to find Saul, or Paul, as we know him later, of course, and he brings him back to Antioch, and they teach there for a whole year. Now, over the last couple of years, I've had the chance to teach here at CCF about 15 times. Um, and I know that in that time, 
through absolutely no ability of my own, but through God only, that I've been able to teach a little bit and you've been able to learn a little bit and that we've together grown deeper in our understanding of Scripture and our ability to reflect Christ into the world. And I think about the ground that has been covered in those 15 sermons and how, how much Scripture we've talked about. And then I think about Paul and Barnabas teaching for a whole stinking year in Antioch and probably not just on Sundays. And I think about what a massive amount of useful preaching was done for those new believers in Antioch. What a wonderful place that would have been to be a believer where they were teaching. And not just teaching to Jews, but teaching to Gentiles also. So that, so that every day more and more people could come in and, and hear about what was going on. And they wouldn't have to worry about whether they were Jewish or, or Jewish enough to come in and to hear it. That it was free and open to anybody who would want to listen. And many did. Because the gospel is for everybody. And, and there's nothing else that's like that. Even the things that we often take for granted, they're not like that. Freedom isn't for everybody. There was slavery in this country until just a few generations ago, and it still persists in forms all over the world right now. Voting isn't for everybody. You know, if you've been convicted of a felony or if you weren't white until recently, there was no voting for you. If, you know, healthcare isn't for everybody. It's too bad if your job doesn't provide access to it. Or, you know, education isn't for everybody. You know, if you can't afford to go to school, if you don't have parents who can encourage you or whatever it is. Not even food is for everybody. There are many people who are starving. Mankind has erected so many barriers to things that ought to be for everybody because they're not for everybody. And it hurts to say that. But the gospel, this, this is for everybody. The truth about who God is and what he has done, that's for everyone. And it has broken down much bigger barriers than those. It's irrepressible. It's for the poorest. It's for the weakest. It's for the homeless and the rich. It's for you and for me and for everybody else. So while many things change, the gospel remains the same. The love of God remains the same. One of my favorite psalms to turn to when things are difficult, which I should probably turn to it more often, is Psalm 136. And you may know this one, or it might become familiar once I read a couple of verses to you. But it's a special psalm in that every verse, every line, ends the same way with this refrain. So let's look at a few verses here. This is actually the ESV translation. I just like the word choice better. Psalm 136, starting in verse 1. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on like that, repeating that refrain, his steadfast love endures forever, for all 26 verses. Other translations have it as his mercy endures forever, or his faithfulness is everlasting. So yours might be a little different, but the essence of it is the same. And this may have been written as a sort of liturgical call and response where, you know, I would say, verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders, and you would say, that's right. What a great way to remind ourselves about what God has done. But it's not just a memory exercise. It's not just for memorizing those few words there. This is actually framed as the answer to a question. Look at the next verse, verse 5. To him who by understanding made the heavens. Well, why did God make the heavens? Here's your answer. Because his steadfast love endures forever, and that was the loving thing to do. 
Verse 6, to him who spread out the earth above the waters. Why did he do that? Because his steadfast love endures forever, and he was creating a place for his people. Go to verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Why did he do that? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And that was the last plague that convinced Pharaoh to let the chosen people go. You go through Psalm 136, and you'll, you'll see this beautiful history of Jewish culture and the ways that they changed, but God stayed the same. Things change, but God stays the same. His steadfast love endures forever. I can't, I can't reiterate the importance of that enough, so I'll let the Bible do it. <clears throat> Psalm 102 says in verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 119, 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights from whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord. I do not change. Things change, church. How much has changed in the last year and a bit for good, bad, and ugly? Things change. One thing remains the same. And because he remains the same, we have to change. Because he remains the same, we have to change. If there's anything wrong in the world, any sin or error or wrongdoing or or strife or war or brokenness, it's not because God is incomplete or lacking or hasn't thought it through. He remains the same. And because he remains the same, we must change. Our plans have to change. And so for Barnabas and Saul in Antioch, that means that their plans have to change. He began by teaching to Hellenists and Jews alike, not just Jews only. The gospel was shared freely and widely, and it meant a different understanding of who could be God's people, of who could receive salvation. Thank God for that, for us, right? And here it is in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians even, it said. Maybe as an insult, maybe as a, a mocking kind of little Christs, you know, but probably a badge worn joyfully, really. And it was there in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas went to ensure the integrity of the gospel teaching. And it was there in Antioch that Christianity proliferated with God's blessing. And it's from there in Antioch that Saul and Barnabas were then sent out to be agents of change in the rest of the world. God's steadfast love for people had not changed. But Saul and Barnabas needed to change what they were doing. Not because the work they were doing was bad, but because there was new work for them to do. And so as Acts 13 begins, Barnabas and Saul have just gotten back from Jerusalem where they had taken a collection of money to to help out the church there during a famine. So they're back in their church where they had been pastoring for at least a full year, but it's time for change. So let's, let's read our verses in Acts 13, 1 through 3. 
Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. This is a real turning point for the church in Antioch. These guys who had been there from early on in the church and had been primary teachers, who they had just gotten back from their trip to Jerusalem, they're losing two of their preachers, two of their pastors. The two that in chapter 11, they said they spent a year there raising up believers, and many believed because God blessed the work they were doing. What a blow for a church to lose two of its pastors at once, huh? <laughs> that must be tough. <laughs> but let's look at verse 1 together. And what do you notice about the church there? <clears throat> it says there are prophets and teachers, and it lists five of such people. And there may have been more even who were qualified and gifted to teach the word of God, but there are at least those five that God was using to instruct people there. And, and we could spend a lot of time, we won't um, now, on who these men are. There's, there's scholarship that suggests that Lucius here isn't actually Luke of the book of Luke and the author of Acts. And there's scholarship that suggests that Simeon is the, the Simon who carried Jesus' cross. And Manaean grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, <clears throat> a powerful and immensely dangerous man. And somehow from that same royal court grew up to be a very different person. These are not meager men. These are men God had turned toward his service. <clears throat> and, and what a reassurance it is for that church to have an abundance of teachers. <clears throat> Excuse me. God's not leaving Antioch high and dry and helpless when he sends Saul and Barnabas away. He's provided the people to continue the work once Barnabas and Saul have gone. And so, very practically speaking, looking at Matt leaving for a few weeks to go on sabbatical, is not a problem because we have an abundance of teachers. We have men full of faith, ready to counsel and to pray. I'll be here. Arthur's here. The other elders are here. You are here. And I'll be leaving soon, along with Arthur. But we have an abundance of teachers. There won't be quite as many as there are right this moment for a time. But it will be sufficient because God takes care of his church. And where do teachers come from anyway? They don't pop out of the woodwork, do they? They come from here. And so if God needs more teachers here, he will raise them up. Just as he had raised those men up in Antioch. About me. Eh, that was weird. <laughs> or Arthur. Because this would be instructive even if it was Matt who was leaving, not temporarily, but for good. Or if Matt and that other Marcus guy were leaving, or Fred and, or Gary or whoever. The point is not who is leaving, but who remains. And who remains is not just the people in general, but the Holy Spirit. He remains here. The provision of God, his steadfast love that endures forever. That's not leaving. The struggle as always is not that God changes, but that we need to change. Our perspective needs to change. So we, we think about people leaving as a kind of division. <clears throat> where dividing means to, to break something apart into two pieces, both of them helpless and useless without the other. The, the, the graphic story of this in the Bible, of course, is 
Solomon and the baby from 1 Kings chapter 3, where if, to recap, you have two women in the same household who both have newborns, and one of them is smothered in the night and dies. And so both women claim the, the living child is theirs. And so they come to Solomon to, to solve this problem, and he says, well, cut the child in half and give him each part. And the mother whose child was still alive says, no, no, give it to her. And because of the compassion that she has, that she would rather give up her own child than have him be killed, Solomon knows that she's the child's mother. And by the way, this also works when kids are fighting over the last piece of pizza, <clears throat> which is how dad ends up with it half the time. <laughs> but that's the kind of dividing we typically think of when we think about dividing, that you take something, you break it in half, and, and neither one is useful anymore. But that's not the kind of division that's happening here in Antioch. This is, this is more like cellular mitosis. And if, if you're a couple years or, or decades removed from high school biology, um, that's the process of a cell splitting into two identical new ones, both with the same characteristics and the same capabilities, and the same DNA as the one that came before. And so now instead of two broken parts, that are helpless, you have two whole new parts, both capable of doing the work. We die without this in our intestines, for example. <clears throat> They're both capable of fulfilling the functions of the original. And when you think about it, isn't that one of the most astounding things in God's creation, that, that you could just get two whole new things from one? Wouldn't that be nice to be able to replicate? It's amazing. And it's what separates the, the kingdom of God from the kingdom of men. Well, one of the things. <laughs> when men try to, try to draw things apart from each other, they break, and they're useless, and they're painful. When God separates, he takes one hole and makes it two. And each part carries with it the DNA, the identity of the original, with the Holy Spirit and the mission of sharing the word intact and fully useful. So when God calls Barnabas and Saul apart, He's not breaking up the band. He's creating two supergroups. And because it's not Saul or Barnabas that makes the church at Antioch tick, just like it's not me that makes Christ Community Fellowship tick, it's not Arthur, it's not Matt. The church is more than the pastor, guys, not to diminish the importance of good teaching. <laughs> it's God alone who makes it tick. The Holy Spirit here is why this church functions. Pastors will come and go as they age or as they're called elsewhere. But the steadfast love of God endures. So God prepared and curated this church in Antioch to be prepared for what he was asking in verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Let me read that again. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We, we want to say and notice the things that the Holy Spirit is saying and doing here, but it would behoove us first to look at what the people are doing here. And notice the phrase, what they're actively doing. They're ministering to the Lord and fasting. Fasting is something I would like to spend a good amount of time on again. Another, another time. But I'd like to draw attention to the first thing, to the ministering to the Lord. Because it's, it's really easy to breeze right past that and think, well, of course, 
and not to stop and think about what that means. When you think about who a pastor ministers to, who do you, who do you think of? You guys, right? It's okay to say that. <laughs> the body of Christ. The pastor ministers to the people. And of course that's right. And there's, there's no reason to think that they weren't doing that as they were leading this church in Antioch. But it says specifically here they were ministering to the Lord. Which begs the question of, how do you minister to the Lord? Well, what is ministering anyway? Sitting down with somebody when they're hurting? Counseling them when things are difficult, when they're struggling? Or teaching them correctly? Or praying for and with them? Yeah, it's all those things. But when we, when we look at the word minister in Scripture, it, it's less of an office, less of a noun even, than it is a verb. It means to serve. The same words often translated as servant. And so if I'm a minister to you, then really I'm a servant to you. This is how Jesus taught his disciples. It's not my job or the job of any pastor to be above you in some station, but to serve you. The word is also synonymous with worship, which is how some translations will have that in this verse. They were worshiping the Lord. And that has a sense not of uh, singing songs necessarily, though it's not excluded, but, but of the way that the priests in the Old Testament would worship God through the solemn work of sacrifices, reading scripture, work in the temple. Frequently, you see in the Old Testament, the phrase, uh, he worshiped the Lord, it's talking about the, the act of making some kind of sacrifice in property or self to God. And so in that light, it's, it's not so odd to hear that they were worshiping the Lord, they were ministering to God, and that in so doing, they were doing exactly what you would want a minister to do with you, which is to listen. They were actively listening to the Lord, paying close attention to him. And what did they hear? The Holy Spirit spoke, and he said to them, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It is so important. It's so important, church, for us to be listening, to be ministering to the Lord, and to have our ears open to what he has to say. And how many times have we been told and seen in Scripture, to him who has ears, let him hear? That's been the effect of every letter Matt's gone through in Revelation the last two months? So many times. And it's not for window dressing. This is not a, it's not just to let it go by, but to pay attention to, to have ears. How many times do we have to be reminded that God listens to the prayers of his saints before we'll believe it? Or how many times do we have to, to see the providence of God in his orchestration of his divine plan before we'll, we are willing to relinquish control of our own? His plan here is clear-cut, too. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So let me ask you, when, when did God call Barnabas and Saul to this work? Is it about to happen? Is it... Something God's been mulling over? No. God had already called them to the work. The change had been made already. The change had been made already. What we see now is the people working out that change and living out that change. It's going to require more change from Barnabas and Saul and for the church there in Antioch. Separate them, God said. And how so? Separate them to me, God says. He says, they're mine. Good reminder of who we really serve. 
Give them up to me, he says. Don't, don't hold on to them because you think they're yours, God instructs his church. He says, but give them to me for the work I have called them to do. Not the work you'd like to see them do, which might be good work. That's not what I have for them. My plans, God says, are more important than your status quo. God's plans are more important than our status quo. That's been a real comfort to me over the last few months as I've been preparing for my separation from this church. I've been called to another work. Arthur's been called to another work. Matt's been called to step away from the work for a little bit to refresh and enjoy the relationship with God for a few weeks. But these things have not come through our own anguished desire, but through prayer and ministering both to you and to God. And because of that, I am sure of them. Because of that, I know this is not division, but separation. That he's not going to rip us into useless halves, but he's going to make us useful wholes who are all equipped and encouraged to do the work set before us. And I say us here, but what I really mean, church, is you. Me, but also you. Each of us. We can, uh, we can get over all kinds of spiritual and scriptural implications and instruction by weaseling into a, an us mentality. Yeah, the church ought to feed the hungry. Or the church ought to pursue righteousness. Or the church ought to act with grace and kindness. Or the church ought to do this and that. But as for me and my house, we will follow along with what everybody else is doing. Right? And Joshua says in the last chapter of the book that bears his name that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <clears throat> and he says this right after he reminds the Israelites that not many generations ago, their fathers worshipped other gods. But look at what God has done for them, he says. He reminds them of some things, how he brought them out of Egypt, how he kept them in the wilderness, how he gave them new land and drove out the people before them and, and so on and so on. And Joshua says, basically, he says, look, you want to go back and, and worship your pretend gods who, who could do none of those things and didn't care for you? Go for it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Your faith is personal. It's not groupthink. I love to talk with people who have wrestled with their faith and, and come away completely convinced in the holiness of God. Those are really edifying conversations. People who have asked question after question and found answer after answer in Scripture and in the Holy Spirit. It's he's the one directing things. You know, as you, as you go through the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, as you watch what he does, you see a lot. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. I won't do a whole survey this morning, but suffice it to say that uh, the Holy Spirit calls us to faith. He helps us understand the word and the truth. He gives us words when it's time for us to talk. And he binds us in love toward one another. And he gifts us with different strengths and abilities so that we can function together as a family. He lives within us. It's by him that we can hear a calling like Barnabas and Saul heard in verse 2. So church, are you listening? Personally, not as a church, are you listening? Not just the general commands of scripture or the, or the principles of religion, but to the still small voice of God. <clears throat> are you listening for the Holy Spirit? And I don't mean in a way 
that we can make him move, that we've decided that at 11.15 when, the, when church is over that we're going to have a, um, a time where we listen to the Holy Spirit and, you know, I hope he hasn't overslept and make us look foolish by not being here. I don't mean that. We don't conjure the Holy Spirit. But have you built your life in such a way that it is listening? Is it your habit and new nature to be attentive to God, to be ministering to God? <clears throat> These men here, in Acts 13, they are ministering to the Lord and fasting, and there's no reason for us to think this was some kind of unique instance. That this wasn't part of their regular character, that they were, if not always fasting, then at least trying to have a mindset that fasting is supposed to help you get to of attentiveness and clarity. It doesn't say that they were going, you know, but we sure ought to figure out what to do with Barnabas and Saul now that they're back. Um, any ideas? It doesn't say... Maybe we will have a seance or something and see if our Ouija board talks to us. No, their, their lives were pointed toward ministering to God and so that when the time was right for the answer to come, they heard it. Here they were gathered, the five of them at least, to put even more focus than usual by stepping away from food and other things for a bit and to be in prayer. And there's no indication to us that... Uh, that they were even seeking a specific answer about Barnabas and Saul, but just that they were attentive to God. They were ministering to God. I think it would be silly to think that they desired to get rid of Barnabas and Saul, their two most experienced teachers, <clears throat> who had helped raise up the church. I really don't think so. Which is really part of the reassurance that this is a work of the Spirit and not something that man concocted. You ever notice that? That as you, as you spend your days going through Scripture, that, that the, the, the plans of God, they, they almost seem to come out of nowhere from man's perspective. And the very pinnacle, of course, being Christ himself. <clears throat> Even the Jews, you know, God's chosen folks who had been in relationship with him for hundreds and hundreds of years, so badly misunderstood his plan that they almost missed the Messiah entirely. Most of them did. They expected a warrior to come in and create political upheaval and, and give them power. And what they got was instead a, a perfect teacher who created upheaval in people's hearts and gave them a very different kind of power in the spirit. A man who was gentle when they wanted him to be vicious. A man who was righteously angry when they wanted him to be blasé. And who let himself be killed when they wanted him to storm the capital and take charge. Mankind would never have concocted this kind of a savior. Why would God do that? Because his steadfast love endures forever. It's okay when things don't quite make sense to us all the way. Because when we have built lives that are ongoing efforts toward ministering to God and full of prayer, God will make things clear when it's time for them to be clear, but we won't hear it if we're not listening. And just as vital as listening to the Holy Spirit, as they did in Antioch in verse 2, is what they do in verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. What is just as important as listening to the Holy Spirit? Is obeying the Holy Spirit. 
This is not a, a, a turning of the shoulder or, or a moving past it. This is not a, an opportunity to move on from something, but to move forward. Not to forget about what has happened, but to embrace what will, knowing that God is in it, that the work and the call is his. These men in the church in Antioch listened, and then they fastened so that they could focus and put their minds only on the prayer and discernment and eliminate distractions so that they could be certain they were obeying well. And then they laid hands on them, on Barnabas and Saul, and they did what was no doubt a little bit, a little bit painful, but much more exciting to send them away. And that's a phrase that's elsewhere used. It means to, to set free or to release. And I think that's a pretty cool way of looking at what was going on there in the church. They're, they're not just sending Barnabas and Saul out, but they're freeing them to go. Because to stay where they were in Antioch, where the people already knew and loved them, and they were already useful teachers, it would have been like being bound or chained. And you know, if you've ever been called to something else, that not doing it is very, very hard. And it doesn't make it easy to disobey him. <clears throat> it would have been detrimental to the church at Antioch for Barnabas and Saul to stay there, even though they were loved and, and they were used to it. And just as the church is freeing Barnabas and Saul to go, to do God's work, he's also freeing Barnabas and Saul from the concern of the work of that church. Not that they won't care about it anymore, but that they don't have to worry about the church there, whether or not it's going to survive without them. <clears throat> of course it will. God has prepared it and commanded it. So they don't have to worry about what the teaching will be like when they're gone or if the Spirit will still be there. Of course he will. They're freed. They're released from that concern so that they can focus on the work that God has called them to. When the Lord calls, we must respond. We must obey. We must change. Look at the four steps in these verses here. God prepares the situation. He does this by, by building up a, a cohort of capable teachers ready to carry the responsibility once the other two leave. God prepares. And then we listen. We actively seek the Lord in ministry and service and worship and have our ears open to the Spirit. We listen. And then God speaks. We sometimes struggle to discern, but remember, it's us who need to change and not God. God is not indifferent to his own plan, and when he needs to speak, he will speak. God speaks. And then lastly, we obey. This is a very important final step. <laughs> Once we hear, we pray and obey. We pray and obey. So four steps. God prepares, we listen, God speaks, and we obey. You notice who's doing all the heavy lifting in that set of actions? Who's doing the real work? It's God, isn't it? I tell my kids this all the time. You, you don't have to do the work of figuring out what the right thing to do is. I've already told you. Usually this revolves around cleaning their room or something. All you have to do is listen and obey. The hard work of deciding is already done. Would that we could obey better God and my children obey me. <laughs> I love them, but they're sinners like me. All we have to do is listen and obey. <clears throat> Things change, church. They change, but not God. His steadfast love endures forever. And so 
as things change around us in the coming weeks, remember that. Pray for Matt. Pray for Arthur. Pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for yourselves. But trust God in all of that. Most of all, pray in thanks to God for his mercy toward us, the, the unity that we have all together in Christ, our Savior. You know, his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for you and for me and for Matt and Arthur and for the Jews and for the Gentiles who would come to believe in him. Remember that our salvation is held in his hands, unshakable hands, even in the whirlwind of changes. And then once you've prayed and laid hands, send them away to do the work that God has called them to do. Separated, but not divided. And if you are confused about this unity that I'm talking about, or if you don't understand how we can divide for good, or if you can't comprehend why God would do any of this, then come and chat with me after we're done here. I'll be around for a while. I would love to tell you what the grace that God has for you what he's already done, what he's already changed, and that we then get to begin living out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to gather as your saints, God. We thank you for the change you have already made in sending your son. We thank you for the change that awaits us when we accept you as Lord and Savior, the new birth, the new self, the throwing off of the old man, God, Help us to continue in that pursuit all the days of our life. Every day we would shrug off that oldness and put on you afresh, God, as your mercies are new every day, knowing that your steadfast love does indeed endure forever and that you don't change. We thank you that you help us too. We love you, Lord. Amen.